Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is George Georgiev, Associate Professor of Law at Emory University. We'll be discussing his article, The Breakdown of the Public-Private Divide in Securities Law, Causes, Consequences, and Reforms, which was recently published in the NYU Journal of Law and Business. I'll add a link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. George, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me. George, in the capital markets in the U.S. and around the world, we have this divide. We have, in some sense, two capital markets, the public capital markets and the private capital markets. I wonder if you could maybe introduce this divide between private and public and securities regulation. Is this dichotomy something that just emerged over time? Was it an intentional choice on the part of early securities regulators? And the words, the meanings, the, the concepts of public and private are in some sense fairly dichotomous, but in other times they can be relatively porous. So I wonder if you can maybe talk a little bit about just how clear the dividing line has been historically between public and private in securities regulation. Those are terrific questions. And there is both the historical evolution of the concepts as well as the original design of the concepts. And in the United States, we have the Securities Act, the Exchange Act, and the Investment Company Act as the three main original securities laws adopted during the New Deal era. And in each case, they imposed a very significant amount of regulation on offerings of securities, on companies, on pools of capital. And they started with the recognition that not Every transaction, every company, and every pool of capital needs to be regulated. And so we have the public offerings, public companies, public pools of capital, and private ones. And each of the statutes draws lines. And when you combine those lines, you end up with something which we have come to call the public-private divide, meaning entities and offerings on one side are unregulated or lightly regulated. And offerings and entities on the other side are much more heavily regulated. And we have that in the United States. We have a different version, but following the same underlying rationale pretty much elsewhere in the world as well. And how clear dividing line over time has been this concept of the public market on one hand and the private market on the other? Has it been a pretty stark contrast with a firewall between them, or has there been some ebb and flow, uh, some porousness between those markets and the, the regulation of those markets? It has always been somewhat porous. And of course, even those terms, public capital, private capital, some of the other terms as well, are not defined in the statute. And we tend to think of it as dichotomous, but of course, it's it's not a perfect dichotomy. But it has been, the public-private divide has been a useful conceptual device for thinking about the structure of capital markets on the underlying rationale that there are certain types of entities and conduct that we would want to regulate that involves the capital of retail investors, unsophisticated investors. And then there are certain transactions and certain entities that should not be as heavily regulated. 
I'd like to come back to that porousness. You talk about the breakdown of the public-private divide, so I want to come back to that in just a moment. But in your article, you talk about this concept of the public company regulatory paradox, which which I take it has something to do with a breakdown of the public-private divide. Could you talk about what you mean by the public company regulatory paradox and what implications that has for our markets and for securities regulation? Absolutely. So the public company regulatory paradox really is a manifestation of the breakdown of the public-private divide. This basically undoing of the original design and fairly long-standing design of securities regulation. And so what is the public company regulatory paradox? Well, it is possible today for two companies that are largely identical in virtually every way to be regulated very differently by corporate and securities law in the United States. If you take a company A, let's assume company A is a public company, it would have to provide periodic disclosures on a fairly regimented schedule about a variety of front topics of interest to investors. There will be requirements for the composition and the structure of its board of directors. It will have to provide audited financial statements, certifications with respect to those audited financial statements. And importantly, it would also need to have robust internal controls and procedures. That is a pretty, I don't want to say burdensome, but that's a pretty robust regulatory framework. And this is our company A. Company B, let's assume that's a private company, would have to do none of that. And it can basically function without providing disclosures, can structure its board in compliance with the fairly minimum requirements under state corporate law, and it would not have to have robust internal controls and procedures, of course, unless the relevant private company investors insist on those. And it used to be the case that for a company to really achieve any scale and size, it had to be a public company. But as a result of changes in capital markets, there is now the possibility for private companies to access much more capital and therefore remain public for a very long time. And that's how you end up with companies that can be virtually identical, but then regulated very differently. And this is a situation which the drafters of the securities laws did not anticipate. And this is something that we've ended up as a result of what I call the deregulatory cascade in the paper. Thinking about the paradox, we can think of specific companies as well. So if you think of a company like Pfizer, a public company, it has to provide all of those disclosures. It has investors. If it provides misleading disclosures, of course, It can and it will face investor scrutiny and potentially securities litigation. And as an example, a private company, we can think of a company such as Purdue Pharma, for example, which is currently in Chapter 11 bankruptcy proceedings, but the makers of OxyContin, but they were a private company and they didn't provide any of these disclosures. They didn't have robust internal controls and procedures. They didn't face investor scrutiny. And this situation, the regulated realm and the unregulated realm and how companies can basically decide whether or not they want to be regulated or not regulated, I argue is suboptimal and paradoxical in a sense. The title of your paper has done a lot of work for me as the host of this show and thinking about what I want to ask you, because it really frames the next set of questions I have in a great way that the title of your paper is The Breakdown of the Public-Private Divide in Securities Law causes, consequences, and reforms. So I'd like to talk one by one about the causes, consequences, and reforms of this breakdown. What was the point that this breakdown between the public-private divide started or started in earnest, perhaps? Is there any consensus around the causes of that breakdown? 
That's a great question. In terms of the causes, it's obviously difficult to ascribe a causal relationship between any phenomenon that we observe in the real world. But I argue that the cause or causes of the breakdown really relate to a series of regulatory and deregulatory developments, which really started from the first two decades of the 21st century. One way to think about the breakdown of the public-private divide, of course, is the much wider availability of private capital, which makes it much less urgent to go public and take on public company status, along with the significant obligations of being a public company. And this development is really a development from the 2010s. And specifically, it can be dated back to the Jobs Act, which Congress adopted in 2012, which significantly deregulated private capital raising and also public capital raising as well. It made it much easier for companies to remain private for a very long time. It also tried to make it easier for companies to go public. And it was in response to a problem, the decline in U.S. capital markets, which was observed in the prior decade. And that problem, in turn, was or has been linked to the significant increase in public company regulation, most notably as a result of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002. The most direct cause, I would say, is the deregulation that started with the Jobs Act and then continued throughout the 2010s. We had the FAST Act, we had various rulemakings from the Securities and Exchange Commission, which further deregulated capital markets. But then what caused that deregulatory cascade? The reason for that was really the Sarbanes-Oxley Act and the challenges that U.S. capital markets experienced during the first decade of this century. You talk about the Sarbanes-Oxley Act and its effect, and, and part of the, the mythology of the act was that it, by increasing the cost of internal controls and other types of obligations, influenced or at the margin caused companies to either decide not to go public in the United States or to go private if they were already public to exit the public markets. There's been some more recent empirical work on that question. And I wonder if you can maybe talk about that myth a little bit. That's a great question. The link between the decline of IPOs and the decline of the number of public companies and overregulation is intuitive on some level. If companies are taking on or will opt into a very heavily regulated regime by going public and they can choose to stay private, then they will do that. And Sarbanes-Oxley certainly increase the regulatory burden. And for a long time, this was really the dominant narrative. And it caused, I think, a lot of regulatory harm because it really took regulatory developments in suboptimal directions, I would say. But we've had some really high quality empirical studies in the past 10 years that have really disproven that narrative. So they've actually shown that the decline in public company IPOs started well before the Sarbanes-Oxley Act and is really linked to changes in investors' preferences, most notably mutual funds, which since this development emerged, have really uh, preferred to invest in larger companies. And so the decline has really been a decline mostly in small and medium-sized IPOs. Another reason for the decline in the number of public companies is increased M&A activity, and that takes out a significant number of private companies that are poised to go public and or public companies that are already public when they merge with another company, then the, the number of public company decreases. So th there have been alternative explanations and I would say uh, much more rigorous and compelling explanations for, for this decline. But the narrative which led to the adoption of the Jobs Act really was this over-regulation narrative. Those are 
some of the causes of the breakdown in the public-private divide, some of the possible causes at least. I want to talk about the consequences. What have been the consequences for a breakdown in the public-private divide? Have they been for better or worse? And whether they are for better or worse, have they affected the market society broadly speaking, or have some constituencies within the market felt them more than others? The answer is both. I think we've had consequences with respect to specific constituencies, most notably, and the one we would expect, certainly, investors, but also employee investors. And I'll say a little bit more about that shortly. And then we've had systemic consequences, which really go to capital markets as a whole and go to the regulatory capacity, what I call the regulatory capacity of the state. And so let's take those in turn. With respect to investors, and here I should acknowledge that there has been uh, a significant amount of scholarship analyzing the investor protection implications of the Jobs Act and various other regulatory developments. With respect to investors, certainly the most important aspect of any securities transaction is the price at which an investor buys into an offering. And the rise of private capital and in the number of and the size of private companies really causes very significant valuation challenges because private markets are much worse at valuation than public markets. We have some really interesting data, which uh, shows a couple of things. First, between 2011 and 2019, one third of the IPOs of unicorn companies or formerly large private companies, when they went public, their IPO valuation was actually lower than the implied valuation at the last private round of capital raising. So that just shows you that private markets tend to overvalue these companies. And then when it comes time to go public, the IPO prices is lower. But even more significantly, I would say, there was also a survey of a number of Silicon Valley investors and analysts, and 90% of them said that the private markets and unicorns are significantly overvalued. And you may say, if 90% of them say that, then they certainly should have, we would not expect them to be in the markets. But 40% of them are also invested in in these companies. So even though they're investors in private companies, they also believe that private markets are overvalued. So that's a valuation problem, which given that as a result of these deregulatory developments, now it's much easier for ordinary retail investors to invest in private companies. This is an investor protection harm, I would argue, because the one of the most important functions of securities law certainly is the efficient allocation of capital. And if private companies are overvalued, then that's allocative efficiency problem, which has real implications also for the portfolios of uh, these retail investors. There's also a governance problem, and we've seen that with companies such as Theranos, WeWork, Uber, again, large private companies that in prior decades would have gone public much sooner. But as a result of the Jobs Act, they were able to delay going public and really had some very significant and expensive struggles in terms of governance and in terms of internal policy, which led to investor losses as well. In the case of Theranos, billions of dollars were completely investor capital were completely uh, wiped out. Same with WeWork and some of the other companies that we talk about uh, and read about in the Wall Street Journal. So this is the investor protection side of things. The rise of private capital also has led to a rise of a new type of investor, and that's the employee investor. So employees in these startups receive as part of their compensation stock options and end up being both employees, but also shareholders of the companies for which they work. This has always been a feature of Silicon Valley, but as a result of Unicorn's ability to stay private for so long, then 
Similarly, the the ability of those employees to actually exit and cash in is certainly delayed, and they end up holding significant amount of amounts of stock and not actually being able to get an accurate valuation. Oftentimes, these markets for private company stock are not liquid. There are certain tax implications as well, and there is a very nice literature on this, which I reference in the paper. So this is the consequences of the breakdown with respect to specific constituencies, investors and employee investors. I want to turn now to the consequences for markets as a whole and then for the regulatory capacity of the state. And so when you think about any regulatory system, the effectiveness of that regulatory system depends on its ability to capture the entities it seeks to regulate. When we have the public company regulatory paradox, whereby two identical firms can be regulated very differently, then the entire regulatory capacity of the state is diminished. And here, I should obviously point out that we're only talking about regulation through securities regulation. But at the same time, securities law and securities regulation has come to fulfill much more important functions, for better or for worse, over the past 20 years as a result of Sarbanes-Oxley, as a result of Dodd-Frank and certain other developments. And so these developments actually make it more difficult for the securities laws to actually regulate the entities which we may think they want to regulate. Are there any examples of a diminished regulatory capacity that listeners should be thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. Think about this push to achieve environmental goals, for example, to combat climate change, which we are seeing a lot of. And the Biden administration has adopted a whole of government approach. And as part of that, now we have under consideration rules that would require environmental disclosures, ESG disclosures of public companies. Now, notably, these disclosures apply only to public companies. And so it's possible for a public company to sell off dirty assets or high polluting assets to a private company. And then the public company subject to these disclosure rules would disclose that it doesn't have any high polluting assets. Its emissions are at reasonable levels. It's progressing towards carbon zero status on schedule. But that's not as a result of the assets being repurposed or cleaned up. That's only as a result of the assets being sold to a private company which doesn't have to provide these disclosures. And so to the extent that there is a desire to provide information to investors or to provide information to society about these high polluting assets, the fact that the private companies are not regulated, that they don't provide these disclosures certainly diminishes that ability. And it is obviously a societal problem, but it's also an investor protection problem because, again, these private companies now end up in the portfolios of mainstream retail investors. And those portfolios contain both regulated and unregulated firms. I'd like to turn to the third prong of your article title, The Reform Piece. And this is the piece that law professors in particular often get really excited about. And I, I want to pose maybe a hypothetical to you. Let's say that you've been named as chair of the SEC and two of your like-minded friends have been appointed with you to the SEC. What would you and your two like-minded friends, what would you propose that you do about some of the problems that you identify? What reforms would you seek? That's the $150 trillion question, Andrew. And why do I uh, say $150 trillion? Well, because that's roughly the size of the public and private capital markets in the United States combined, even though I should also point out that we don't have actually very good data on the size of private markets because of this transparency problem. 
So what would I do? I think I would want to study the issues more. And so the purpose of this paper really is to highlight the breakdown of the public divide, to, to highlight the fact that this is a problem. What are the manifestations of the problem? One of them is the public company regulatory paradox. There are very significant consequences for investors, for employee investors, and then on a systemic level. But with respect to reforms, my probably most significant reform proposal is really a proposal to study the issue further and to involve, by the way, a larger segment of stakeholders. Because what we've seen, both with respect to the Jobs Act and then some of the reforms related to securities law exemptions, is that there was a clear realization that reform is needed. But then the venture capital and kind of the industry and other lobbyists basically provided the blueprints for reform. And with the Jobs Act, famously, even the SEC was opposed to some of the provisions that then Congress adopted and the SEC had to implement. So I think there is a need for a broader study of these issues. But if you were to press me for specific reforms, I think we certainly need to look very seriously at large private companies and unicorns because they're the most clear manifestation of, in terms of just observing the markets, of the breakdown of the public-private divide. Because these unicorn companies look like public companies, but they are private companies and they are unregulated. And even though the unicorn phenomenon has been in the news and we've been talking about it for a long time, just in 2021, we've actually seen some really significant developments in that area. At the end of December 2020, the number of U.S. unicorns stood at 251. And then at the beginning of December, which is when I concluded the study, the number of unicorns had nearly doubled to 473. And then the implied valuation of U.S. unicorns now is about $1.5 trillion, which is an 11-fold increase since 2013, and actually a nearly three-fold increase just in 2021. These changes are really accelerating, and private, unregulated, private companies, unicorns are a problem that needs to be looked at, specifically what information, if any, they provide to investors, and how are they dealing with their employee investors, and what is being missed if we actually allow them to look and behave like public companies, but actually be unregulated and remain private. And here I'll, I'll point out that, of course, the rise of unicorns can be linked directly to the, to the Jobs Act and the changes in the shareholders of record thresholds, which require registration and the assumption of public company status upon one certain criteria met. So large private companies, certainly something that needs to be looked at. And then the second set of reforms, and I think that's going to be much more difficult, but I think we need to lower the stakes of being a public company. And that doesn't necessarily involve deregulation, but that actually may involve moving some of the public company regulation provisions to a different category. Having regulation apply not to public companies, but perhaps to all companies which have assets above a certain size or which have more than a certain number of employees or various other thresholds have been proposed. But I think part of the problem now is that there is such a big difference between being a private company and a public company that it's understandable why uh, companies can remain private and uh, continue to finance themselves in the private markets. They wouldn't want to take on public company status. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this interview and from the paper? The first takeaway is that the system is incoherent, uh, currently has evolved to be incoherent and is very leaky. We have the public company regulatory paradox, and this harms investors, is a problem for employee investors, and this also actually makes it much more difficult for the state to 
regulate. And here I'll point out that Congress, despite the breakdown of the public-private divide and despite the inconsistencies in terms of or the voluntary nature, really, of public company regulation, Congress continues to consider bills and propose bills that regulate on the basis of public company status. And each of those bills, and we'll have to get into the merit of those bills, but each of those bills would apply only to public companies. And I think actually what Congress aims to capture with those bills, and I talk about them in the paper, is significant economic entities and entities that have a large societal impact. And so regulating on the basis of this self-elected public company status, and it's completely a choice nowadays on behalf of firms, is illogical and suboptimal. And so that's one takeaway. And the other takeaway is just that there is the need for this uh, deliberative process that gets us to a more stable place. And that can seek to expand the size of the public realm. And I talk about this in the paper, uh, or it can regulate the private realm a little bit more, or it can circumvent entirely a public-private divide. And there are various options. I think a lot of this comes down to policy preferences. But having a blueprint for reform uh, will be particularly helpful. Now, uh, for many of these reforms, uh, we need congressional action. And I think most of us will agree that congressional action is unlikely to come anytime soon. But having a blueprint that is ready to go will be helpful whenever the next opportunity for reform arises and whenever Congress wishes to re-engage. Our guest today has been George Georgiev, Associate Professor of Law at Emory University. We've discussed his article, The Breakdown of the Public-Private Divide in Securities Law, Causes, Consequences, and Reforms, which was recently published in the NYU Journal of Law and Business. I'd a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. George, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.